Good morning. Well, this morning we're finally here. We finally arrived at the beginning of our study of the Gospel of John. Um, Last time we studied the Gospel, it was the Gospel of Luke, and that was a number of years. John's a little shorter, just under 900 verses. But even then, if we were to average a speed of, say, nine verses a week, which, let's face it, is optimistic, that would put us in at 100 messages. So I'm imagining we'll be here for about three years, give or take. And consequently, given the length of our study, before we begin, I want to do some introduction to John itself. The book is majestic. The book is glorious. And given the amount of time we're going to spend here, I think it's worth framing the book. How are we to come at it? Who is John? Who's the author? When was it written? Why would that matter? Who's he writing to, and why does he write? Those, those are some of the issues we're going to begin with this morning. So I have a word of prayer with me, and you can open, I suppose, to John 13 is probably the first passage we're going to look at, and we can begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, as we begin this study, I pray that you would give the increase by your Spirit, that your purpose in this book would be established in our hearts, that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we too may have life in his name. And I pray you would give that growth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's commonly known that there are four Gospels, and we refer to three of them as synoptics. If you know what the word synonym means, that's the basic idea. Three of the Gospels cover largely the same material. There's significant overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is the non-synoptic gospel. That's because about 80% of what John records is unique to John. And when you realize that that includes the death, burial, resurrection, the triumphal entry, and the feeding of the 5,000, just about everything else in John is unique to John. Um, John is some of the simplest Greek to translate, and yet as we go through, I think we'll find it some of the deepest truth. So let's begin by asking the question, who wrote the Gospel of John? Now, you may say, Pastor Jeremy, that's obvious. It says right in my Bible here, the Gospel of John. But, of course, that's not the way the original manuscripts came to us. On the one hand, what's interesting here is John's Gospel probably has the most information embedded within it about who wrote it, and yet there still remains some debate. So who wrote this Gospel? And the first blank you've got here is we know that it's the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we're going to be moving back and forth a lot in John's gospel, so I don't feel bad because we're going to be within one book, but we are going to move around a bit. So if you dive in and look at John 13, 21 to 25, is the first introduction of this mysterious character. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. When we read about the encounter of the empty tomb in John 20, verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord. And when Jesus appears on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they're in the boat, 
In John 21, 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And we know he's the author of this book because if you turn to chapter 21, John 21, it makes it explicit. Let's just read um, from 20 to the end of the book. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So that saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but If it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So it's clear from this paragraph that the disciple whom Jesus loved is the one who testifies and wrote this gospel. So that's the first step. We know that the author is identified in the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So so who is that? Now, I'm going to suggest to you with near certainty that it is, in fact, no surprises here, John, the brother of James and the son of Zebedee. John, the brother of James and the son of Zebedee. Now, we already saw in chapter 13 the close relationship this disciple had with Jesus. In fact, he appears to be part of Jesus' inner circle. Now, if we know anything about Peter from the other Gospels, is that he's brash. He's not afraid to just speak. And yet at the Last Supper, he has the disciple whom Jesus loved to ask the question. So imagine the familiarity of this disciple to Jesus if Peter decides to say, hey, ask, ask him who's going to betray. So this disciple, whomever he is, the one whom Jesus loved, seems to be very close. Even the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we see him fishing with Peter at the end of the gospel. Go to chapter 21 again, if you're still there. And in 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, let's go fishing. And then if you jump to verse 7, we see that one of these people named is the disciple whom Jesus loved, for he speaks that the disciple whom Jesus had loved therefore said. So we can conclude the disciple whom Jesus loved is among, verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee. Now who are the sons of Zebedee? From the other Gospels we learn, Matthew 4.21, and going on from there he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. The sons of Zebedee are James and John. So James and John are on the boat, and one of them is the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's possible it's one of the other unnamed disciples as well. But when you add it up that he's one of the inner circle, and we know from the other Gospels that John is one of the three or four disciples who who got special access to Jesus. Let me just read to you. the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. These three 
get to witness the transfiguration. In Mark 5, when he raises um, the synagogue leader's daughter, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. So within the 12 apostles, there appears to be an inner circle of access. Three disciples whom Jesus gives more revelation to. Let's fit this all together, and it seems to make sense. It's John. It's possible it's someone else, but no one else seems remotely likely. Now, you might say, well, maybe it's James, but we learn in Acts 12, 2, that James is already dead. In Acts 12, 2, about this time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So he's someone in the inner circle, someone Peter defers to to ask Jesus a question, someone on the boat with Peter, in fact, we see him there exactly doing this thing um, in Matthew 4.21. He's fishing. We know John's a fisherman, so it makes sense. This fits well. And less strongly but significant is the near universal testimony of the church. So the church understood in the first instance the author of this gospel to be John. It, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's got special access. He has an intimate relationship with Jesus. He's part of the inner circle and we read in Eusebius, writing around 311 to 325 A.D., so about 200 years after these events, 250 years. Nevertheless, of all the disciples of the Lord, only Matthew and John have let a, left us written memorials. And they, tradition says, were led to write only under the pressure of necessity. So Eusebius, he's writing a church history, ecclesiastical history, trying to write for the church what took place in the first century, he tells us that it's understood in his day that John and Matthew are the only of the 12 apostles who wrote. And we also learn a little later in the same book, but of the writings of John, not only his gospel, but also the former of his epistles have been accepted without dispute both now and in ancient times. So Eusebius lets us know around 311, 325, that John's gospel was received by the church as scripture without dispute and the authorship was received without dispute as the apostle John. Not, not definitive, but again, it, it forms a clear picture. I think this makes the best sense of the data. So that's who I'm going to suggest to you as the author. John, the disciple, certainly the disciple whom Jesus loved, and I, and I think the disciple whom Jesus loved is pretty clearly John brother of James, the son of Zebedee. Which then gets us to the question, when is this written? And you may ask, what's the significance of that? Well, I think pretty significant. And I think there's internal evidence to suggest to us when it is written. I'll play my hand. I think John wrote last. I think he wrote near the end of the first century. And I, and I think there's much evidence within the gospel to suggest this. And again, this helps frame what he's doing and why he's doing it. It also helps explain how he can pick material that doesn't occur in the other Gospels. He would be aware of by that time what stories, what oral traditions, or even possibly the Gospels themselves that were written, what they contained, and give him a framework to fill in gaps, things that he thought were significant that they hadn't covered. So if you turn to John 21, 18 to 19. We get one pointer. And again, this is far from totally conclusive, but I think when you view the, all of the data as a whole, it paints a relatively clear picture. 
and we're trying to study from internally, from within the gospel, what do we get? What we get is this. In John 21, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, I think that suggests that Peter is already dead at the writing of this gospel. Jesus saying is enigmatic. It's not entirely clear. Someone's going to take you by the hand, lead you where you don't want to go. And then John makes the aside to the reader. And I think that the most straightforward way of reading this would be the assumption being the reader is aware of Peter's death. I, I think that makes the best sense of the data, likely after Peter's death in 65 AD. But more significantly, in the passage we read just following, where Peter turns, not particularly liking the news he has gotten, says, well, well what about him? And Jesus says, right, um, verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. But then we read, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? So there's got to be, here's your blank, enough time for this saying about John to spread. And again, the best sense of this would be they see the saying about Peter fulfilled, he's killed. And they see the other disciples begin to be killed, and yet John is not killed. In fact, the longer John's alive... And the fewer living disciples there are, the better sense of this saying spreading. The, the odder it is, the, the fewer men left standing, the more attention is drawn to the fact that John has not died. So I think that suggests a later date. I think that evidence there, that little aside from John, indicates enough time has passed for the saying to spread. It's more unusual that one of them is alive. I think, that's, um, I think that's suggestive from there. Now, point C, no later than the beginning of the second century. And that's because the oldest Greek fragment of a manuscript that we have is a Gospel of John fragment. It's Papyri 52. You can look it up online. Just type in P52, Gospel of John. It's a postage stamp-sized fragment of John's Gospel from John chapter 18. And it's dated from about 120 to 125 AD, which is remarkable. I mean, that puts it, I think, within 50 years of the original writing. And with that one little scrap of John's gospel, thousands of volumes of neoliberalism flew out the window. People speculating that John's gospel is written in the 4th century in Alexandria. Well, it's rather difficult to suggest that. And you've got a fragment of John's gospel, double-sided, from 125 AD. So I think it's fair enough to say John had to write before that. So your blank here, at the top of point two, the date of John's writing, I'm going to suggest around 85 AD, maybe a little later. And this, again, is confirmed by church history. This is the, this is the testimony, again, of the early church. Let me read to you from Irenaeus. Or Irenaeus. He's writing about 182 to 188 AD. And he writes, those who were conversant in Asia with John, the disciple of the Lord, affirmed that John conveyed to them that information, and he remained among them up to the times of Trajan, which is 98 AD. 
So a guy living less than 100 years after John's death tells us, writes and records, that John lived at least till 98 A.D. Um, Eusebius goes a little further. At that time, the apostle and evangelist John, the one whom Jesus loved, notice the connection he's made, was still living in Asia and governing the churches of that area, having returned after the death of domination from exile on the island. We know he's exiled to Patmos. Well, according to Eusebius, he returns from exile and functions as a leader in the church. And that he was still alive at that time, maybe testified by two witnesses. And then he cites Arrhenius and he cites Clement of Alexandria. Moreover, he tells us the tradition handed down to him of why John wrote. He writes, when Mark and Luke had already published their gospels, that they, they say John, who had employed all his time in proclaiming the gospel orally, finally proceeded to write for the following reason. The three gospels already mentioned having come into his hands of all and his own hands as well, and that he accepted them and bore witness to their truthfulness, but there was lacking in them an account of the deeds done by Christ at the beginning of his ministry. The, the Cana period. Most of the gospels focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's where the largest chunk of the synoptic gospels takes place. Further, they say that John being asked to do it for this reason gave in his gospel account of the period of time which had been omitted in the earlier evangelists and of the deeds done by the Savior during that period, that is, of those that were done before the imprisonment of John the Baptist. So, that's the testimony we have of the church history, that John lived to the end of the first century, that he wrote last that's your last blank here. Church history and tradition holds that he wrote his gospel last. Now, why would that be significant? I think it helps frame what he's doing. He's filling in gaps as he sees it. He's giving supplemental information. It explains how he's able to avoid the material covered in the synoptics, not because it's unimportant, but because he knows it's already testified to well. I mean, let me tell you some of the absences in John's gospel. In John's gospel, there's no matter of transfiguration. There's no parables. There's no demoniacs. There is the triumphal entry, but there's no institution of the Lord's Supper, even though we see events taking place during that supper. It's remarkable that John leaves them out, and I think it helps make sense of the fact that if he knows those things are well testified to by two or three witnesses, he can focus on other things. I think that makes good sense. I think that makes good sense. So we've covered authorship. I believe the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. I'm guessing he wrote. I think it's, it seems reasonable. The church history verifies as well. The internal evidence suggests sometime around 85, 80 years later, which significantly places that after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That would be significant. Finally, well, not finally, penultimately, Let's look at the intended recipients of John's gospel. Now, this, this study I find fascinating. There's a ton of information in John's gospel of who he thinks he's writing to, what we can learn from them. Because, of course, what we want to do is put ourselves in their position as, as nearly as we can. Who, who's he writing to? And I, I suggest we can find three things out of those he's writing to. Turn back to chapter 1. And the first is this. John is writing to an audience that was largely unfamiliar with Jewish language, geography, and custom. 
John is writing to an audience that at the very least, he's not confident they have a tremendous amount of understanding of Jewish language, geography, and culture. Now, that's significant because sometimes when you're studying a book, you'll read commentaries and things, and they'll say, you really need to read all of this source ancient material. There's really good evidence in John's gospel that he has no such assumptions about who he is writing to. Look at John chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Thank you, John, for translating a Jewish term you're not certain we would get. Don't don't miss that. That little which means teacher is John's way of saying, I'm not confident those who are reading this know Hebrew or Aramaic. He does the same thing again in verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Fascinating. So in the span of just a few verses, twice John is translating Hebrew terms for the reader, not confident that they would know what is being said. Then in 142, he does the same thing. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Turn to chapter 4. In the encounter with the woman at the well, this is just fascinating stuff that if you read slowly and carefully, you can pick up on it. You're trying to figure out who does John think he's writing to? What what is he assuming or not assuming about his audience? What what can we glean from them? In John chapter 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Oh, thanks filling us in on that, John. He thinks that's significant. It's certainly significant in the narrative of John 4 that Jesus talking to this woman is remarkable, is noteworthy, and yet he doesn't assume we know that. He fills that in for us. Next, in chapter 5, notice how he introduces the feast system. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. He's translating terms again. And I can show you a few more examples. Turn to one more. Turn to chapter 6 to show that he doesn't assume we're familiar even with the geography, or at least the Jewish names. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. He gives the sea its Greek name because he's not confident we're aware of its Hebrew name. And you can look at the rest of the references I give there. He translates Gabatha, the stone pavement, and Golgotha, the place of the skull. So in all of those places and markers, John's giving us indication that he's not confident, he's not taking for granted that his readers are familiar with Jewish language, geography, or at least the Jewish names for geography, or even some of their customs not knowing that they have nothing to do with Samaritans. However, John's gospel does suggest that the readers he's writing to have a very competent grasp of the Old Testament. Now, certainly John doesn't quote the Old Testament as frequently as, say, Matthew does, but still the allusions and the references are many and demonstrate that he's expecting us to track with him In a number of places. Most notably, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. That's clearly echoing off of Genesis chapter 
1. Or in chapter 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Referencing a, a small event, a significant event, but small event in regards to text devoted to it in the Old Testament. Or turn to chapter 12, where he closes out the first section of the book. We'll deal with this more next week, but the first section of John's gospel closes with this sad statement and then a profound quotation of Isaiah. John 12, starting in verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from him. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. I could show you many other examples, but clearly John is, not, is expecting us to follow with quotations from the Old Testament, which makes an interesting question. How is it he expects us to know the Old Testament but not Jewish names and customs? Well, simply put, it's very possible that they're reading a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Like as not in the New Testament, the Septuagint's the LXX is the reference, is, is cited about 60% of the time, and 40% of the time the Hebrew is cited. So he expects them to know the Old Testament likely from a Greek translation, and the information about the Samaritans isn't stuff that's in the Old Testament. It developed during the intertestamental period, the, the rivalry and the, um, the, the looking down and the despising of the Samaritans is not something you could learn clearly from the Old Testament. So he does expect us to know our Bibles, but he doesn't expect us to be scholars of the ancient Near East. But most interestingly of all, there's evidence in John's gospel that he does think some or many of his readers actually have knowledge and familiarity with the gospel's events. In other words, there's, I think, a couple points of evidence that John doesn't think he's writing to people who are hearing this for the first time. Turn back to chapter 1. I'll just walk you through a couple of these. Uh, the first one or two may not be as significant, but I think the third one will be. Um, notice how he introduces Andrew. Let me catch up in my notes pages here. Yeah. Notice how he introduces Andrew. John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Who's he? Well, he actually introduces Peter in the next verse. It's an odd way of introducing Andrew by referencing him to someone he hasn't yet introduced in the text. It seems to suggest he thinks his readers may be aware of who Peter is. Perhaps. The same thing we see in chapter 1 in John's reference to Jesus' baptism, which, again, doesn't take place in John's gospel, But John the Baptist references it almost as though we're familiar with the fact that it happened. Look at 126. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
That's not the reference I'm looking for. Actually, verse 31 and 32. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, with no further explanation given. Now we know from reading the other Gospels, when did the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove? At his baptism. John gives no explanation. He just tells us John the Baptist referenced this. Now, now those examples are not terribly compelling. I think the next one's more significant. Turn to chapter 3, verse 24. This is when the dispute arises between disciples of John the Baptist. I'll start actually in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anion near Salim because water was plentiful there. People were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Nowhere in John's gospel does he record John being put into prison. It's an odd statement to make unless you think some of your audience are aware of the fact that John the Baptist was at one point arrested. In fact, it fits really well with the notion that he knows the things he's recorded up to this point are largely absent from the Synoptic Gospels, and he's giving the reader a time marker to know when to plug this in. These are things that happened before John was arrested. In most of the Gospels, the action takes place almost entirely after he's arrested. But again, to reference an event that's not contained within the Gospel seems really odd unless you expect some or many of your readers to be tracking with you some or many of your readers to be tracking with you. Um, Turn to chapter 4. We'll look at two more examples. Two more examples. 4, 43, and 44. After two days he departed from Galilee. Why? For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Except nowhere in John's gospel does Jesus make such a statement. It's almost as if John thinks his readers may well be familiar with many of the utterances of Jesus. We're told that actually in John, Matthew thirteen fifty seven, They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown or in his own household. One more example. Turn to chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, verse 1, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, that's referred to as disambiguation, because Mary is a very common name in the first century. There's many Marys in the Gospels. When he introduces Mary, he distinguishes her from other Marys, except that information about her anointing the Lord and wiping his feet with her hair doesn't occur until chapter 12. And again, it's an odd way to introduce someone by referencing an event you haven't yet related. It, again, you add all this together, it seems to suggest John is assuming or thinking it likely that many of his readers are already familiar with key players, Peter, key events, the baptism of Jesus, the arrest of John the Baptist, the anointing of Jesus with oil. And so he's helping to situate, disambiguate, and clarify by referencing those events. Okay? So let's, let's add that together then. So John then is writing to people who he does not 
think or does not assume have knowledge of Hebrew terms, Jewish terms, culture, or geography, or at least culture outside of that revealed in Scripture. He does think they know their Old Testaments, and he does think they may well be aware of some of the events. Okay? Now, that's going to matter in our final point of why he wrote. Why he wrote. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I don't like just doing introduction. I want to deal with at least a text, and so we'll deal with John 20, 30 and 31. Now, not many books of the Bible have purpose statements. A couple of them do, and it's really helpful when they do. Without a purpose statement, you've got to read the book, and you've got to identify major themes, and you've got to try to figure out what the author's trying to communicate. And if you've ever taken an English class, you realize how easy it is for many views to occur about why someone wrote something. Well, John tells us why he wrote, which is really helpful. Look at chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And in those two verses, we get a paradigm and a focused vision of why he's writing. As we study through John's gospel, we should be studying it, thinking, how does this help serve that purpose? How does this help establish, prove, convince that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And how might we, by believing that, have life in his name? So quickly here, first point, he carefully selected his material from a far greater pool. He carefully selected his material from a far greater pool. How great of a pool? Look at the last verse of the gospel, 21 to 25. John makes it clear. He had limitless source material. Now these things, now there, sorry, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So when John says many other things Jesus did, he's, he's understating the point. He had limitless source material. And so what he's telling us is he handpicked these events. He handpicked these stories, these narratives, these discourses. That's the first point. It's not haphazard and we see a lot more order in John's gospel. Like I said, the chunks tend to be larger. There's chapter-long events. Chapter 5, the healing of the man by the pool, followed by a discourse to help explain the significance of that healing. Chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, followed by a discourse on I am the bread of life. The entire chapter, one event, one discourse following. And John hand-picked these from a vast pool and so we, we ought to trust that he knows what he's doing. He, he, he has purpose in it. Second, specifically he says he's highlighted signs that Jesus did. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples. Turn back to chapter 2. And, and here's, an, here's what I mean by showing how this statement can help zero us in. If there's any doubt that this is his purpose statement... Chapter 2, verse 11, should be like glowing neon. This is after he turns the water to wine at the wedding at Cana. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, 
and his disciples believed in him. Do you see how well that intersects with now? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Turn to chapter 4. Verse 54, after he healed the official's son. This now, the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. See, John's keeping count for us. Now, he doesn't give us the third. He's going to expect us after this one to start picking them up on our own. And they're pretty obvious. The entirety of chapter 5 is one miracle followed by a discourse. The entirety of chapter 6 is the feeding of 5,000, Jesus walking across the sea, the crowd meets up and again, they talk some more, and so on. But he shows us the pattern. Here's the first sign. Here's the second sign. And he makes it clear. The disciples saw this sign and they believed. I wrote, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. His disciples beheld his glory and they believed. Okay, so our thesis is showing the author is actually marking us to it, pointing us to it. He did many other signs. Now, signs are a major theme in John's gospel. Um, turn to uh, chapter 6. While you turn, I'll just read you a few more of these. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he tries to flatter him. He says, teacher, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. When Jesus heals the nobleman's son, he speaks disparagingly about signs. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But then he heals the nobleman's son, and we're told it's the second sign. So, John chapter 6, verse 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So signs have drawn a crowd. And this is significant. I'm going to zero in here because John's gospel will equally highlight signs and yet speak disparagingly about signs. Um, Look at verse 14 in chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they saw him feed the multitude, the 5,000 with loaves, multiplying them. They said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. That seems good. So much so that they wanted to make Jesus king then and there. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself. But then, when they catch up with him, look at what Jesus says in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what's Jesus saying there? They saw the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. That's what he's... How how can Jesus say he didn't see the signs? You you just follow me because you ate the miraculous bread. Well, I think the point is this. They saw the sign, but signs signify things. Signs point to things. The point Jesus is going to make of the multiplying of the food is that he is the bread come down from heaven. That just as God fed Israel in the wilderness with manna every day, God miraculously surprised food. Even for us, he gives us the power to, to, to earn a living. All of our food, all of our gifts are from him. So Jesus doing this miracle is pointing to the fact that he is the true bread from heaven. 
And they missed it. They missed it. They saw the sign, but they didn't understand the sign. They didn't interpret it rightly. That's important because these people who wanted to make Jesus king, who say, this is the prophet come into the world. By the end of chapter 6, most of them are going to depart and abandon Jesus as he says some hard teachings about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. As good as it might look for these people, in verse 14 and 15, the vast majority of them don't have anything like a faith that's living and active. And I think Jesus here gives us the key to understand it. It's not just enough to see the miracle, but to understand what the sign points to, what the sign signifies. John is writing these signs so that we might believe something in particular. And it's not, I wrote these signs so that you might believe Jesus did miracles. I wrote these signs so that you might think Jesus walked on water. No, he wants us to see these signs to come to very particular conclusions. Very particular conclusions. He wants us to understand the signs rightly. And then he tells us, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He has written, he has done so that you might believe, that you might believe. John's gospel is often called the gospel of faith. This theme of belief and faith is repeated over and over and over and over again in John's gospel. J- John is, is not shy about this theme. I've even read some commentaries that, that have complained that in preaching through this gospel by your 23rd message on believe, it can be problematic. I doubt we'll have that problem, or I hope not. But it, it is emphatic. It's, it's right there in plain day. But turn to John chapter 1. He doesn't waste much time getting to it. This gospel of faith. Verse 11 and 12. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible itself is John 3.16. Why did God send his son? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Again and again and again, Jesus is going to insist the works that God requires is to believe. Whoever believes in me stands up in the temple during the Feast of Booths. As the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But again, it's not just faith. Sometimes people even say, I I believe in Jesus. John is narrower than that. And it's important to make that point because in Jerusalem, in chapter 2, there are people who believe something about Jesus. And shockingly, we read in chapter 2, verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now you'd think from reading the thesis, perfect. They saw the signs and they believed But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. What? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Perhaps these people who believed in Jesus did not believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God. We'll we'll deal with that when we get to it. But, But the narrowness of what John says, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, that believing you may have life in his name. Now, very quickly, we'll, we'll spend our study in the book looking for these, but that Jesus is the Christ, I'm going to suggest to you, means primarily in John's gospel that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. John's gospel begins with some unfamiliar terms for Jesus. We'll get to the familiar ones quickly enough, but in the beginning was the Word. Seems as though John has coined this name for Jesus. He uses it again in the book of Revelation. And then the next title for Jesus that we see is on the lips of John the Baptist in verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Such a familiar verse to our ears. And yet this is the only place I know of in Scripture where that title is given. One other place in in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Now, we'll get to, he's the one of whom Moses spoke in, in 145, or in verse 41, he is the Messiah, which means Christ. But John starts with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, giving us framing, how to understand this. The woman at the well and speaking to Jesus says, I know that when he, the Messiah, comes, he will set all things right. And Jesus, amazingly, the first person he clearly reveals his Messiahship to is this three times married, living with her boyfriend, Samaritan woman. He says, I who speak to you am he. So John wants us to believe specifically that Jesus is the Lord's anointed, the one whom he promised, the one whom was promised to come, whom Psalm 2 tells us will be the Davidic king, will be the Davidic heir, the Lord's anointed. And we'll see and we'll look and we'll see that this is exactly who Jesus is. Which gets us to the second phrase. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by which I think John clearly means Jesus is God, is his deity that we're focusing on here. And again, John's gospel, more than any other gospel, explicitly, clearly, undeniably declares Jesus is God. Just look at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, and he was in the beginning with God. That seems pretty clear. Turn to chapter 5. Why do I say that Son of God means that? Well, the first time this title comes up meaningfully for discussion in chapter 5, that's exactly the point being made. Jesus picks a fight, as it were, with the Pharisees. He, He intentionally heals a man on the Sabbath, and they take umbrage at that because the one who healed him told him to pick up his mat, and there's this debate, is that working or not? And Jesus could have de-escalated. In chapter 8, he does that with the crowd. He says, look, in your law, there's circumcision on the eighth day. And if the eighth day is a Sabbath, you recognize that circumcision takes priority. So if you can recognize that, how are you mad at me that I made a whole man's body well on the Sabbath? He could have reasoned that way, and there would have been a nice rabbinical debate. No one would be trying to kill him. Look at 516. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working till now and I'm working. My, my dad works on the Sabbath, so I do too. And they don't miss it. They don't misunderstand what he's saying. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They get it. They understand. You just claimed to be God's equal. And then the rest of chapter 5 is a discourse by Jesus explaining, so we don't misunderstand that. But absolutely, the claim, Son of God, in John's gospel, means God's own equal. And this is, of course, the, the crime that they charge him with to put him to death. In chapter 20, verse 28, our law condemns him, for he has made himself the son, calling God his own father. And if you ever talk to someone who, who tries to argue, well, Jesus never said he was God, turn to chapter 8. Chapter 8. John's gospel is filled with the most clear statements of the deity of Christ. John chapter 8. 58. I'm talking 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the divine name of God. That's not just, God, that's not just like Elohim generic. That's the name revealed by God at the burning bush. Tell them I am sent you. And again, they get it. They picked up stones to throw at him. They've understood Jesus as committing blasphemy. There's no confusion. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Good night. But if you want something even clearer than that, turn to chapter 20. You remember Doubting Thomas? Poor Doubting Thomas. He gets that name. He, he's the first one I can know of to clearly, unequivocally, without any doubt, declare the deity of Christ. Chapter 20, verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out my, your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus receives his worship. Jesus receives his confession of deity. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So in, in due course, as we study through this, we'll see that. But the two main tenets that John wants us to get, he wants us to see the signs, to understand what they say about Jesus, and to come to the conclusion, first, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the promised anointed one from God who would come, make all things right, the Davidic king, the Davidic heir, but most centrally, the suffering servant who would die a sacrifice for our sins. He, he wants us to believe that, and he wants us to believe Jesus was who he says he was, that he was the very son of God. And in John's gospel, it becomes clear, son of God means God's equal. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a wise prophet. He is God in the flesh. Those two things he wants us to believe, and he tells us why. That believing, you may have life in his name. Believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote that we might have life. That's his ultimate goal, that we might have life in Christ's name. This gospel is written so we could be saved, we could be made alive. In one sense, believing Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, is, is, is not the final goal. 
It's necessary to get to the final goal, but the final goal is life. Again, this is why John's gospel is frequently called the gospel of faith. Now, I want to make two points here. It may seem to you, and probably most commonly I hear John's gospel referenced as the gospel to create faith, the blank here that that you might come to faith in Jesus. And I think that well could be what's meant by that you might believe. This would be the notion of inception, the creation, the starting of faith. And certainly John's gospel gives us examples of that. In chapter one, after John the Baptist points him out, one by one the disciples come to faith. And he highlights that. He highlights the Samaritan woman and her town. We have come to believe this is the Savior of the world. We we see examples of people coming to faith, coming to believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But, and if you've got an NIV here, I, I think their footnote's helpful. You could translate this that you might continue to believe. Continue to believe. Keep believing. That you might be believing. This is part of the reason why I highlighted the fact that John, I believe, wrote last. This is why I highlighted John's writing to people who seem to have some knowledge of the events. I certainly think John's a great gospel to give somebody who knows nothing, but there's internal evidence to suggest John thinks he's going to help and benefit an audience who's already heard some of these events, which fits very well with the perseverance of faith the continuance of faith. I think it's equally true to say John is writing to keep us believing. And that finds, I think, emphasis in his own writing. Just two examples, because we're late. We're running, I told Mike we weren't going to sing the closing song and I was proven a true prophet. But turn to chapter eight. That's a joke. It's a joke. I work for a non-profit. I'm the son, not the son of a prophet. Okay, okay. John chapter eight. We'll see this more next week when we look at themes and and challenges in John's gospel. But as much as John emphasizes believe, 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 faith, 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 there's at least five instances, we've already seen one, where people in the gospel have something John can call faith, and yet clearly they're not good to go. We saw that in chapter two. While, While he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name while they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus didn't respond by saying welcome into the family. He didn't entrust himself to them. Most blatantly right here. Look at John chapter 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31, let's make it even clearer. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide or continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they say, wait a second, we've never been enslaved to anyone. I mean, aside from the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Romans, apart from them, we've never been slaves of anybody. Take that back. And Jesus says in verse 5, the 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you're seeking to kill me because my word finds no place in you, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. Whoa. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Where are you going with this, Jesus, when you talk to the Jews who had believed in you? He makes it clear in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. So you can respond to Jesus in a way that John can call believe twice. When he said these things, many Jews believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, who he can 
in the same discussion, tell them, you're of your father, the devil. My word finds no place in you. In other words, as, as D.A. Carson says, in John's gospel, there's believing and there's believing. And so I think a focus on John wanting faith to continue, to remain. How does Jesus say to these people? If you continue or abide in my word, you're my disciples. Turn to John 15 and the farewell discourse. As Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, what does he emphasize? But the perseverance, the continuance, the remaining in him. John 15, 1, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, you get in the emphasis of abide. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide. Verse 7, if you abide and my word abides in you. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So the notion of John writing at the end of his life with the other Gospels already written, the report about Jesus gone around, but, but being aware that there are significant things Jesus did, significant things Jesus said that he thinks would benefit us. And he writes, sure, that, that those who have not heard might come to faith, that those who have not heard might come to belief. But I think he also wrote, and if you had to pin me, I'd, I'd say more so, that those who did hear might keep believing, that they might bear fruit, that they wouldn't be like the seed that fell upon the rocky soil and sprang up with joy and withered, but that they would persevere faithfully. In which case, that means John's gospel has a great benefit for us. I'm guessing most of us in this room would claim to be disciples, followers, believers in Jesus. If you're not, this is a gospel that's for you as well. You'll see example after example of people coming to faith, people putting their trust in people following Jesus. But I think there's a lot of internal evidence to suggest because he's writing to people who he thinks may well know who Peter is, may well know about John the Baptist's arrest, may know, well know about Jesus' baptism and the anointing. But look, it's, you, you gotta understand, you need to believe Jesus is the Messiah and that he is God. And if, and if you will believe those things and keep believing those things, you will have life in his name. That's his goal. He wants us to have life. And Jesus testifies to this again and again. We'll close. Let's look at that in, in chapter 17, what's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do now. Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So very, very quickly, Jesus' prayer, he first prays for himself. He longs for the reestablishment of the glory and fellowship he had with the Father before the world began. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples specifically. 
He knows they're going to be tested. He knows the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. He knows Judas will betray him. And he knows while he's on the cross, he will be otherwise occupied. And he says, Father, you've entrusted them to me. Now I'm entrusting them to you. But then in verse 20, he starts praying for a third group of people. He starts praying for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Through the word of the apostles, in this case specifically John, Jesus is praying on the night of his crucifixion for those who will believe through the word of the apostles. That's us. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for us that we might believe that as we are conformed to his image, that would spread to further belief that the world might know. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So get this, John wrote this book of signs that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we have life in his name. And then we learn from Jesus, even that isn't the final goal because he's praying here for those who will believe because of the testimony of the disciples. He wants them to have life and then he wants the world to see the change in them and believe. So there's a lot at stake in us seeing this. That's the focus, that's the purpose, that's why he wrote. And so as we go forward, let us not forget that. Let us not lose sight of the, the, what is central for things in the periphery. Let us have eyes to see, ears to hear. Let us call on the Lord to give us faith that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing we have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord God, how rich are the blessings you've given towards us. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, We thank you for your word. And we thank you that on the night Jesus was betrayed, even as he was filled with trembling, the looming cross, he prayed for us. He prayed for our faith, our unity, and that he prayed through our faith and our unity, the world might come to believe. So let us listen attentively and watch carefully. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.